Okay, so we're in the, we're in the book of Acts, and we're kind of winding down to the last part of the book. I think next week is our last week in the book. But if but if you've gathered anything from the book of Acts, you realize the book of Acts is about power. That's power of the Holy Spirit. There's powerful healings. There's powerful preaching. The church is is growing with power. There's a powerful thing that happens at Pentecost where the gospel goes out and is spoken in every language. People can understand in every language. And so tonight, uh, today, when we look at Acts 19, we're going to see the same thing. So if you're willing and able, why don't you stand? We're going to read from Acts chapter 19, the first 20 verses. This is the word of the Lord. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized you with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There was about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and there for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. And some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took his disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannius. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even his handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were being carried off to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus who Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped upon them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jew and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing, divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced the magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they 
counted the value of them and found it came to be 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. This is the reading of God's word. Every bit of it is true. And he gives it to us because he loves us. You may be seated. You know, there's lots of uh, power phrases uh, in the English language that we use often. There's the abuse of power, power trap, power vacuum, absolute power corrupts absolutely, power play, power trip, and one of my favorites, power nap. There's girl power. There's a lust for power. There's the powers that be. There's more power to you. There's may the force be with you. A lot of you know that when you watch football or you're watching athletes, they score a goal, they do something amazing, they'll, they'll jump off off the turf or they'll run in the end zone and then they'll do this. <sighs> My power did this. I think I'm going to start doing that at the end of the sermons. Power. They were doing a study at the University of California on how power influences relationships. And they did it based around this a game of Monopoly. What they did is they got several groups of people together and they randomly assigned each set of games so that one player in each group was the rich player, the high status player. And the game was rigged in their favor. And these high-status players got twice as much money at the beginning of the game. They got uh, twice as much money when they passed go. And each time when it came to be their turn, they got to roll both of the dice, whereas everyone else only got one die to roll. And the differences began to emerge very quickly. Because these rich players started showing signs of dominance and power. And what they would do is they would take their piece and move around the board really loud and demonstrative. And then they would rudely look at the other people and just grab their piece and move it for them. (laughs) And they grew in their rudeness. Here's some of the statements from the rich players. I have money for everything. You're going to lose because I have all the money. And I'll get yours. I have the power. I'm going to buy out the whole board. I'm pretty much untouchable. And the game was rigged. But these high-status players, these rich players, started acting like they had real power and real status, even though it was a game. Do you think, do you think that you crave power? you think that power can be addicting and blinding? Do you think it's possible that in little and in big ways, you could abuse power? Well, let's look at this together. Take your sermon outline and first, the power struggle. Ephesus is a really big city. And the main idolatry of the city was power. Magical power, political power, money power. 
The temple to the idol Artemis, the god of love and fertility, was a massive structure. And fertility, the worshiping of fertility, was about power, was about manpower. And here comes little Paul, preaching the gospel in this city of Paphos, declaring Jesus. And Luke says later in this chapter that it caused no little disgrace in the city. And God is showing these miracles through Paul such that his handkerchiefs and his sweatbands and his work clothes that he is wearing actually begin to heal people. They just take them to people and they heal them and they, they actually are able to cast out demons with them. Now this kind of power that God is displaying was atypical even for the book of Acts. Because Luke says it was extraordinary. It was not the norm. And God is intentionally bringing these miracles of power to, to, to validify the message that Paul is preaching. But he's also doing this. In this city of power where they worship power, God is condescending to speak their language of power so they can see his. And then we have this, these seven sons of the Jewish high priest. So these are men of status, men of leverage. They want more power. It says they are itinerant Jewish exorcists for profit. So this is a chance to make lots of money fast and to leverage more power. So they start going around saying to the dark powers of evil, I adjure you in the name of Jesus who Paul proclaims. Now, we all struggle with the idolatry of power. Because nobody wants to feel weak. Nobody ever wants to look powerless or dependent. We want to feel big. We want to feel powerful. In Genesis 1, we're told that God made us in His image. He made us to rule and subdue the earth with power for His glory and our good. But the original temptation in the garden was that we resented, Adam and Eve resented the limits that God put on them. And the fall happened, why? Because they wanted to be like God. They wanted to be like God with power. That's what the fall, how the fall happened. Now rather than accept our finite, finite nature and our dependence on God, we desperately seek to find ways to make ourselves more powerful. And we have this, we have this cosmic insecurity in us where we scramble to feel more powerful. And this causes this will to power to operate in the, in the heart of every human being. Think about this. Church attendance is way down. Even before COVID, it was going down. Why? Would people who profess to be Christians stop going to weekend worship regularly? Because their idols of power are working. And they don't, they don't need God. They don't feel finite. They don't feel dependent. You know the Beatles? You ever heard of the Beatles?
the Beatles were at the height of their power. This is what John Lennon said. Christianity will go, it will vanish and shrink. I need not argue about that. I'm right and I will be proved right. We are more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. So how did how did Nazi how did Nazi Germany happen? How did that happen? It was born out of the humiliation of World War I. There was a power vacuum created because in World War I Germany was crushed. They were made to feel small. They were made to feel insignificant. And in that insecurity, they were determined to be powerful again to cover their shame, and to be revered as powerful. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal where researchers were talking about power. They were noting that, that all of us are nice. We're nice people when we're trying to climb the social ladder. But as we get closer to the top, we begin to act like beasts. This is what the research said. As one business professor concluded, it's incredibly a consistent effect. When you give people power, they basically start acting like fools. They flirt inappropriately. They tease in a hostile fashion. They become totally impulsive. Some have even compared the feeling of power to brain damage, noting that people with lots of authority tend to behave like neurological patients with frontal lobe damage, the brain area that's crucial for empathy and decision-making. And then the study concluded this way. Even the most virtuous people can be undone by a corner office. Uh-oh. I have a corner office. More on that later. So why do we seek power? What are we hoping to gain? We seek power because we love to be admired and we love to be praised. We want to be noticed as powerful and influential. And so we will bend anything to get applause. We employ power to exalt ourselves. In fact, it has been noted that craving this attention and this admiration that we're so after can actually be deeper than our desire for sex. Do you like money? Say yes. We all like money. Okay? But money can be an idol of power. Think about this. For most people, money would lose half of its pleasure if no one knew you had it. Because money says, I am powerful. I have a great capacity to get wealth. Admire my work ethic, my timing, my shrewdness, my courage to take risks. Money says, I'm not wealthy for no reason. I'm wealthy because I'm better at different so what are the signs of power idolatry? Well, of course, there's arrogance. Of course, there's excessive talking and boasting about yourself. There's, uh, there's self-righteousness. But there's also anger. Anger always surfaces as those where idle power is, is growing. Think about this. What more evidence do we need than our collective social response to the COVID pandemic? 
when the illusion of control over our health was shattered, how often did we, all of us, resort to angry rhetoric and defensiveness instead of reflective melancholy? You remember those days? See, there are people who are still not speaking because they're angry. They're still ticked off. Envy is a sign. We want more power. Impatience is a sign because, you know, I'm an important person. I shouldn't have to wait. I was in Publix one time, and I saw this older gentleman arguing with the manager. He was raising his voice. The manager was remaining calm. And this, and this was go, kept going on. He, this, this, this guy kept getting agitated and, and lecturing the manager. And at one point, he finally says to the manager, do you have any idea who I am? The rules don't apply. You always have to be right or seen as right. And you always have a them. You always have a group of people that you're smarter than, you're superior to, and you talk about them, you criticize them, those those anti-vaxxers, those Republicans, those liberals, those gays. Power is addicting. Fantasizing about it. To, To feel, just have all this confidence that you're just above the rest. Conspiracy theory obsession. <laughs> that's 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 that you have the power. You you know the real deal. You have inside knowledge that no one else has. When others do you wrong, how dare they? They'll be punished. I mean, don't cut me off in traffic. Do you have any idea who I am? Even religious obedience can be a power play. Think about the older brother in Luke 16. He was dutiful, he was hardworking, he was obedient, but he was using his goodness for selfish gain. Hey, this is, this is a great one. Look at this picture. I'm going to work hard on being less condescending. Condescending means talk down to people. But, as we see in this story, a a lust for power will always turn on you. Your power will flip. What happens to these seven men? Well, Luke writes here is actually kind of humorous, but also really scary. Because the demon says to the seven men, we know Jesus. We know Paul. I mean, they're powerful. We're, We're scared of them. But the demon says, who are you? You don't have any power. You have an illusion of power. And then the demon overpowers the seven men and and beats them up, strips them naked, and they run out of the house, run out of the city, and everybody in the whole city of Ephesus hears about it. Complete humiliation and derision. Power turns on you. When Bernie Madoff was sentenced to 150 years in prison for running a $65 billion Ponzi scheme, he publicly blamed his pride. He said at some point he faced a year where he should have reported significant losses, but he could not admit his failure as a money manager. He could not accept the loss of power and reputation. You see, we know that we're addicted to some level of power in our life. 
when we will not admit that we're weak, when we will not admit that we feel small or powerless. And relationships are the primary casualty of that. Just ask a recovering workaholic about what he did to his family. Ask a porn addict. Ask a successful CEO who ran his employees into the ground. Ask a parent who's obsessive about their child's success and it dominates everything that the family does. Listen, do you know that your adult children, if you have adult children, did you know that they talk about you? You know, sometimes they say things like this. Uh, Dad does not listen. Uh, Dad is always right, and his opinions are always the loudest, and he never asks me what I think. Mom, mom is not going to apologize. Oh, she'll talk around it all day long, but she is not going to really own anything. She is not going to apologize. You know, my parents, this, my parents, my parents, oh, their, their opinions are always given. But they never really ask what I think. Do they think I'm seven still? You know, I'll never forget, I, I, can, I can see the exact place my teenage daughter Sarah was standing in the house. And she is sobbing big tears of frustration. And she is saying to me, Dad, you don't listen to me. You don't listen to me. And I remember exactly what idol of power was at work in my parenting Do you see your power idolatry, your power grabs, your struggle for power? And do you know that anxiety and that insecurity that you feel when you're powerless and it's crushing you? Second, the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul comes to Ephesus and finds these disciples of John who's not heard of the Holy Spirit. Now these 12 men are kind of like in an Old Testament time warp. They had not heard about what happened at Pentecost. So they know all about John the Baptist. They know about the one who was to come, but they did not know his name. And so Paul brings Pentecost to them. He brings them to Jesus. They become Christians, and they get the Holy Spirit. Now, the outward sign of prophecy and speaking in tongues confirms this new inward spiritual reality that's taken place in their hearts. Now, this was not the norm. This is not the norm when a person comes to Christ. It was not even the norm in the book of Acts because lots of people in the book of Acts became Christians and they didn't do this. The miracles, the speaking in tongues, and other gifts of power were always to testify and to point to the preaching of the gospel and the new birth. And so the Holy Spirit comes into the life of everyone who becomes a Christian. But the Holy Spirit also will bring forth fruit in that person's life, outward fruit to testify to the new birth. We see this in the book of Galatians, where Paul is reminding the Galatians that they have the power of the Holy Spirit. He's telling them to walk in the Spirit because there are certain things that they already possess, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and 
patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. He says to the believers there, he says, these things are powerful outworkings of the Spirit's work in your life. And then he says this, against such things, there is no law. They are an unstoppable force in the world. Love is an unstoppable force in the world. It's evidence of the Spirit's work. So then in verses 17 and 19, we see more outward signs of the Holy Spirit. Three things. They extol the name of Jesus. They confess their sins to one another. And they destroy their idols. And the Bible tells us that these can only happen when the Holy Spirit is at work. Let's just look at a couple of them here. Look, first they burn their idols. They burn the books. Burning of the books was their source of power, their source of magical power. They worshiped them. And it says that these books were worth a lot of money. Worth a lot of money. So they could have sold them, you know, but they didn't. They burned them. So what's, uh, what would be on your burn pile? What, would be on, what needs to be on your burn pile? What gives you a sense of power over others? Is it your money? Is it your talents, the position you hold, the number of years you've done your job, the fact that you make six figures, where you live, what you drive, the fact that you can take vacations like no one else, and when you post them in social media, everybody just goes, I'll never get there. What is it? What should be on your burn pile? What makes you, you? In Philippians, Paul makes a list of all of his worldly accomplishments, all his religious accomplishments, all the stuff that made Paul, Paul. And he piles them up and he lights a match to them. He torches them. And he says, everything that I've accomplished in life is garbage. It's rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I mean, could you do that? Could you? Pile up everything that makes you, you. Everything that, that makes you feel like you stand above some people. And light it on fire? Strike a match to it? Really? Or even spiritually so? You know, I've been a pastor here for over 20 years and seven years in church. Light a match. You know, when I lived in Orlando, I, I had an acquaintance uh, in the church I went to, and, and uh, he was a doctor, but he always made people know that he was a doctor. Every conversation, he would kind of move it towards him kind of explaining that he was in the medical field and that he was at the highest level of his profession. That was his power. Now, the people here that are burning these books, that are worth a lot of money. They're not doing it and going, oh man, this, oh, this is such a bummer. I got to burn my idol. I got to get rid of oh, oh, I paid so much money for those books. Can you believe that we have to do this? No. They are rejoicing. They are happy. I mean, they're tasting freedom from having to get power from something that actually gives them nothing but insecurity and fear. This is what Samuel Rutherford says. For if you should see a man shut up in a closed room, idolizing
comprising a set of lamps and rejoicing in their light. And you wish to make him truly happy. You would begin by blowing out all of his lamps and then throw open the shutters of heaven to let in the light of heaven. That's what happened here. Paul went to Ephesus and blew out all their lamps, blew out all of their power idolatry, and he threw open the shutters of heaven to let in the light of Christ. And it changed them. They rejoiced. So what's on your burn pile? Being a Christian means the Holy Spirit is always helping you to stoke your burn pile because our hearts are idol factories. The Spirit's work in us is always giving us the liberating power to lay down our idols as fast as we collect them and to actually get a little joy out of being a pyromaniac. The second thing that the Spirit does here is they confess their sins to one another. They confess their sins to one another. Let me ask you a question. Is the cleansing blood of Jesus real to you? Is the cleansing blood of Jesus real to you? Has it gone from a printed recipe to a mouth-watering experience? It's tangible. Honesty Confession of your sin and brokenness to others is the pathway to experience a fresh, liberating, and solid awareness of the gospel. Honesty with others about your brokenness and your sin does not get you more favor with God, but it can really help you to taste it. And without honesty, we take a terrible risk and set ourselves up for a terrible fall. Look what Dane Ortland says here. When you trust God enough to speak your sinfulness to another human, the channels of your heart are open to feeling forgiven. This is because the same pride that stops us from confessing our sin to a brother or sister also hinders our felt belief in the gospel. Pride hinders fellowship both horizontally and vertically. Evading honesty before another Christian is fundamentally a rejection of the gospel itself. Refusing to be honest with another is works righteousness in disguise. We are believing that we need to save face. We have to retain an uprightness of appearance. We have to look good in front of other people. We have to look powerful. We have to look like we know it all. ask you, um, do you look at pornography? We need to get honest with another believer. We need to confess that. We need to find someone you trust. Not everybody. You need to find a few. You know, is, is your marriage struggling? Is there resentment growing? Then you, you need to come see a pastor. This week, you know, do, you, do you drink too much? You need to tell somebody. You need to get honest about your sin and your brokenness. You know, I, I'm in a men's group, um, and the guys in my group say one of the things that they enjoy the most is the fact that we
we can be honest about our sin and our failure and our brokenness, that we can be honest that we just don't have it all together, and that, that we, can, we can say those kinds of things to each other and that we can say, hey, yeah, me too, me too. I'll give you one right now. I struggle uh, with anxiety, and uh, I have panic attacks. And I had one last week, and it was not fun. And uh, my wife had to just literally hold me to get me through it. thing that's going to destroy you is an illusion of happiness, that you have it all together, and that you have to do everything to protect it. Scott Sauls is a senior pastor in a church in Nashville, and uh, after he had been there for about two years... One of his members came up to him and said, Scott, you are an incredibly gifted preacher. But I am totally unimpressed by you. He said, the moment I knew that you could be our pastor, the moment I knew that you would be a great leader for this church, was the moment you told the entire congregation that you struggle with depression and that you struggle with anxiety so much so that you had to go to therapy for years. That was the day I knew that you'd be a great pastor for this church. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Finally, third, power we see in the Son. The Son. So, so Paul comes to Ephesus, the city of power, and it says in verse 20 that the word of the Lord continued to move out with power. In verse 10, it says the gospel was spread to all the residents of Asia. So what about Paul's preaching was so powerful? What did he preach? Well, he preached that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God. But what specifically did he preach? Well, he preached Christ crucified. That Jesus, the all-powerful one, gave up his power to reconcile us to God. That Jesus, the all-powerful God, gave it up to have us. And I want to tell you, Maybe you've been in church too long, but that is nuts. That is crazy. When have you ever seen a, a, a leader of a country give up power? A powerful CEO who has lots of money give up his parking space? Or, or a dictator relinquish power for the flourishing of others? No, they're always about getting more power and pushing their power out and abusing the power. And getting a big head in their power. That's always what it's about. There was a boy who, a Muslim boy, 
Muslim boy came up to his, uh, his neighbor who happened to be a college professor. He came up to his neighbor and they were talking about Allah. And the Muslim boy said this. He said, if Allah was here right now, Allah would tell everybody, I am powerful, I am very great. And then he said, Allah would use his power to make everyone to believe in him. And if anyone did not, then they would die. He said, that's what Allah would do if he were here on earth. And you got Jesus. He lays down his life to serve you, to die for you, to have you. Only that gospel truth will give you the power that you need to root out your desperate Listen to what Ann Voskamp says about this. She says, God gave us Jesus. Jesus gave him up for us all. If we have only one memory, isn't that enough? Why is this the memory I most often take for granted? God cut open the flesh of the God-man and let the blood. He washed our grime with his bloody grace. Doesn't that memory alone suffice? Need there be any more? Will I trust God or look to my idols? If trust is to be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into his brow, your name on his cracked lips? How will he not also graciously give us all things deemed best and right? He's already given us the incomprehensible. Do you hear that? So do you want power? Then embrace it. You know what the pattern of the Christian life is? It's death. It's laying down your power of death and resurrection. So we give up power because Christ has powerfully loved us. And that's why we say at this church that we are on mission in everything that we do. That everything that we do is to bring the healing love of Jesus to broken people in broken places. And so we're on mission in student ministry. We're on mission at Camp Seven Rivers. We're on mission in our school to spread the gospel. We're on mission in our community with disaster response and grief share and divorce care and the New Horizons camp. We're going to give up power to bring the power of His name. it's our calling. My son is a runner. In fact, this morning on the way to church, he called me to tell me his time and his running, uh, what he's doing this morning, because he's training for some more races. But So he runs, and so he every year he runs in Atlanta in the Peachtree Road Race. And this year he got done with the race, and he was kind of walking through the crowd and the bystanders and the other runners. Everybody was dispersing. It was all over. And as he's walking through the crowd, he saw this little bald man who had a racing number on, kind of off to the side a little bit. And he, he realized, he goes, I know who that is. I know who that is. It was Dan Cathy, the CEO of Chick-fil-A. One of the richest men, one of the most powerful men in Georgia, one of the most influential men in business in our country. And this is what my son said. He said, Dad, 
Dan Cathy was over there by himself, and he was picking up trash and putting it in a bag, walking through the street, picking up all the trash generators in the roadway. Now, why was he doing that? Why is this man of power, man of status, man of accomplishment, losing his power? Because he knows his Savior, who gave up power, the ultimate power to love him. God loves him. And you know, I don't think he can get over that. He just can't get over that. And so he wants to make his city beautiful. How about us? You know, this event that we're doing, uh, August 13th, we're going to this cemetery to clean it up. That's a really important event. And you should be there. Parents, you should take your kids and go out and serve the community together. We don't, we don't look at those events and take them lightly. Because we give up power to show his power in our community. And if you're not going, you can't make it, then you should be. You're on the lookout. You're on the lookout for that event. Because who has loved you beautifully? His name is Jesus. Christ is beautiful.